Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my alien experimenting friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about what you can do when latent variables conspire to multiplicatively interact, focusing on the classic product indicator approach and the more recently developed method of latent moderated structural relations. Along the way, we also mention confession, being hardly sorry, conspiracy theories, Greg's Area 51 poster, trashed record needles, backwards messages, the Scooby-Doo gang, street justice Velma, tasteful ascots, chocolate in my peanut butter, two-legged tables, spinning 90 degrees, drug mules, Pearson's crabs, Freemasons and Illuminati, and chalking up a win. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Can I make a confession? I'd rather you didn't. (laughs) Aren't you Catholic? Yes, I was raised hardcore Irish Catholic, and confession is involved. We sometimes joke about I didn't realize something until I was 18 or 20. Mm -hmm. All right, I literally was in my teens on this one. This is not figurative. This is literal. When my brother and I figured out that when you start saying your confession, one of the lines is, I am hardly sorry for my sins. <laughs> Just stick with me. Okay, okay. For 16 years, I wondered why you would open by saying, I am hardly sorry for my sins. Turns out it's heartily. <laughs> <laughs> is this not written down somewhere? So, I- <laughs> Yeah, you know. But anyway, I would heartily like to hear your confession. (laughs) Okay. My confession is that growing up, and even a little bit as an adult, I like conspiracy theories. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in them necessarily, but I think they're so cool. So I watched the moon landing. I don't know if you were alive. I was, but too young to watch TV, but you were old enough. (laughs) Right. But I watched the moon landing, and then growing up, I heard all of these people talking about how that was fake, that couldn't possibly have happened. One small step for man, one giant leap for conspiracy theorists the world over. That really captured my attention. It's like, why would anyone think that? And then the one that really got me, I mean, from the time I was a teenager, was the whole Area 51 and that there's alien experimentation. I had an Area 51 poster in my room all through college. I just wanted to believe that there was this great cover-up for alien experimentation. My crime isn't daring to believe. The truth is out there. Notice that Greg used the word necessarily. You said, I don't believe in them necessarily. (laughs) Come on, Paul McCartney looks nothing like he's not the same guy. (laughs) Mr. I have a map of Area 51 on my wall. Yes, necessarily. No, they're fascinating. They are. They're absolutely fascinating. Back in the day, one that I got a lot is I was really into rock music. Mm -hmm. I would work part-time jobs to buy albums, and I would sit in my basement and listen to all sorts of things. Yeah. And they had secret messages that were backmasked into albums that were subliminal messages of Satan worship (laughs) or things like that. 
And the thing is, and this is part of a conspiracy theory, right, is that there's sometimes a kernel of truth. And there was backmasking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you actually can go and put your finger on an album <laughs> and run it backwards. I trashed some needles that I way. I trashed sure. a number of needles <laughs> doing that. What I kept telling my mom is, just listen to Black Sabbath forward. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to backmask anything in it. Exactly. Satan laughing spreads his wings. Oh, Lord, yeah. The key question to all of this is, why the hell are you talking about this? <laughs> Well, you and I work in this latent variable world a lot, and it's a world where we don't actually see things going on, right? We find evidence of things in these measured variables that we have, but oftentimes the theories that we have are things that are going on at this unseen, this latent level, right? So you and I are like the Scooby-Doo gang trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Scooby-Dooby-Doo, where are you? We got some work to do. Wait, which one am I? Can I be Velma? Jankies. <laughs> you can be Velma if you want. Have you heard that they changed so that Velma doesn't call the police anymore because she was a quintessential Karen? <laughs> so I want to be Velma. Velma who doesn't alert the authorities. That's right. She's got a Glock 9 and takes care of business herself. <laughs> Street Justice Velma. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm not shaggy. I'd be more like Fred, the blonde guy with the tasteful ascot. Like the one you're wearing right now? I was going to comment on that, but I didn't know if it was intentional or not. We better split up and look for clues. Yeah. Anyway, so you and I deal with this latent world, this unseen world where a lot of things are going on. And one of the things that you and I talked about, I don't know how many seasons ago, was this topic of moderation. But you and I never talked about it really at the latent level. You and I talked about it at this manifest level. But most of the things that you and I do, most of the things we care about, in fact, most of the theories that people have out there are actually at the latent level. So the thing that pulls all of this together for me is that a lot of people have theories that variables that they can't see are conspiring or interacting to do things that give rise to the data that we observe. And so what we have to do is try to take all of this evidence, right, Scooby-Doo gang, right, Velma? We have to take all of this evidence and try and work our way back, not just to this latent variable influences that latent variable, or these latent variables represent a growth process, but that latent variables actually conspire. They work together interactively. They moderate. They do all kinds of crazy things. And this is another beautiful example where Dan Bauer teaches a class with all the kids in it and then sends them to me, and I teach a class with all the same kids in it, but Dan and I, who are two doors apart, don't bother talking to one another. <laughs> and in Dan's class, he says, main effects are often uninteresting and really our theories are tested within the interaction. It depends, right? You and I have waxed poetic about this a lot, is it depends. Is the treatment effective? Well, it depends. So he says, you have to do interactions. Then they walk across the street and take a class from me in SEM, and I am equally passionate that you should not use manifest variables. They're characterized by unreliability. We don't understand measurement, and that you should only use multiple indicator latent factors whenever possible because it disattenuates the regression 
learning coefficients, and this is how we move forward as a science. So kids are really well-trained to do interactions <laughs> among observed variables without looking at main effects. Kids are really well-trained to do multiple indicator latent factors with main effects, <laughs> but the two parts are never bolted together, and I'm dead serious. Yep. Where we are as a field is, we are really good at interactions among observed variables. We are really good at multiple indicator latent factors, but funny story, it's really freaking hard to do interactions among latent factors. Yeah. And so why don't we try and take that apart a little bit today? Because, you know, if someone comes to me with some theory about variables interacting, honestly, I don't want to send them down the measured variable path if I don't have to, because interactions are so damn hard to detect. They're so fraught with power challenges. I want to give people a fighting chance, A, to be able to detect them, and B, to have their interactions assessed actually at the level where they think they're happening, right? And that's the big sell for the latent variable methods, that you're actually testing the constructs that you care about. So let's get these two kids together, shall we? And see what we can do with it. And you know what? It is going to involve one of my heroes in the entire field. And his name has come up repeatedly and it's going to come up again. And it is Dave Kenny. Yeah. All the way back to the 1980s, right? Some of the work by Kenny and Judd. I always think about Kenny and Judd as launching the first ship. Yeah. And the arc to this storyline from Kenny and Jed on to wherever the heck we are today has so many ins and outs and maybe false starts even that I want to be careful we don't get too deep in the weeds. But for those of you who are really interested in interactions, it is a really interesting story because people were really trying to figure this out all the way back to Kenny and Judd who were trying to essentially reparameterize a model to be able to get an interaction with all kinds of challenging constraints involved. And for them, I think they only had a, a manifest outcome variable. So they were doing it with factor one, factor two, the interaction between those two, and then a measured outcome like a Y on the other side. But just imagine someone presented you with that problem. How the heck do you model a latent interaction, right? And that was really the pressing problem that people were trying to figure out all the way back then. What I love about Kenny and Judd is it's this remarkable balance of three things. One is, this is just something we want to do. It's what we were laughing about a few minutes ago, but we have this ability to do multiple indicator latent factors. We have this ability to do manifest variable interactions, and we really want to put them together. So it's kind of like, remember back in our growing up, hey, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. And it's like, <laughs> hey, you got peanut butter on my chocolate. You got peanut butter on my chocolate. Well, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Two great tastes that taste great together. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Real milk chocolate, delicious peanut butter. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. You know, so one element I love is there's just this thing that they want, right? The second is it was so logical how they did it. So in a multiple regression, let's say that you have two observed variables and let's call them X and Z predicting Y. Mm -hmm. Well, you have the main effect of X, you have the main effect of Z. You can capture the interaction by simply taking the product of X and Z. Mm -hmm. And you often will center X and center Z, although that's not critical to do that. And you bring that into the regression where you now have three predictors, even though you only had two measures. You have X and Z and X by Z. So that's old school. That goes way, way back to back in the day. 
But what Kenny and Judd said is, well, if we got five indicators on factor one and we got five indicators on factor two, what if we just took the cross products of the (laughs) indicators across the two factors, which is exactly what you do in regression, and make a new latent factor that is indicated by these item cross products? So dimension two that I love about it is it's just logical as heck. Yep. But dimension three is where you really sit back in awe is Kenny and Judd did this and said, holy crap, we can't just take product indicators and throw them on a latent factor. It turns out these are these wicked, hard, nonlinear constraints we have to put into the model for reasons that they describe. And they do these mathematical derivations for the constraints to put in. So that's the trifecta that I love about that work, is it's greedy, it's clever, and they solved a really vexing technical problem. Yeah, and no one could do it. (laughs) So, okay... You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, if you think about back in the day, right, when they were coming up with that, was about the time when I had my Area 51 poster (laughs) up in my dorm room. And I was going deaf at a Van Halen concert. So you kids today don't have to code this in Lisrael, but <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> dear God, coding that was just a beast because, first of all, you had exactly as Patrick said, all of these product indicators. If Patrick says you got five indicators on this factor and five indicators on that factor and you want them to interact, then you made 25 product indicators as the indicators of this latent factor that represented the interaction between those two things. So This is beastly, or can be beastly for starters, but then there are all of these interesting constraints that are reflective of some of the underlying assumptions. You know, if this is normally distributed, or that's normally distributed, then these won't be related, but those will be related. It was very, very challenging for anyone to implement. So the mathematics was beautiful, but the hands-on was really tough. And in my eyes, that was the rate-limiting step early on. Mm -hmm. And it's not even just, oh, it's too hard, I can't do it. I mean, these became almost intractable. You just couldn't realistically do it. And you also have to get in the Wayback Machine. We had the software in the mid-80s. Mostly it revolved around Lizrael 7. Right. That was the main game in town. And it was persnickety. Like, there were two issues. One was just writing out the code Mm -hmm. for the nonlinear constraints. But the second one was that you had to bring empirical data that were sufficiently structured that allowed you to get a converged and stable and interpretable solution. So it's one of those things of the problem was solved, but you almost couldn't do it in practice. Yep. And that, I think, was a paper that launched a lot of valiant attempts at trying to make that practical. So I remember that a book came out in 1998. It was an edited book by Schumacher and Markelitis. And the title is Interaction and Nonlinear Effects in Structural Equation Modeling. And I remember being incredibly happy just when I saw the advertisement for that book because this was such a fraught area, right? Something that was very inaccessible. And I was incredibly happy that there was going to be some light brought to this. And I remember getting the book, going through it, and the chapters in the book are wonderful, but 
they are in no way a unified voice on how to do it. It was really, in my view, a collection of chapters that were, well, you could try to do it this way, or maybe you could do it this way, or what about this way? And I came away at the end of that book with a lot of different strategies, but there wasn't any coherence to them in the end. And that's not really the fault of the book at all. That's just sort of the state of where we were. Kenny and Judd and some related work had provided some solution. So a lot of people had ideas. And some of the ideas, we don't need to go into them all, but some of the ideas were things like, yeah, boy, that's a lot of indicators that you might have on that latent factor. Maybe you could just use factor scores. Yeah, why don't you get a factor score for that first factor for everybody and a factor score on that second factor for everybody and just multiply those together and you might use that product as the loan indicator of a latent variable or uh, hell, you might just use them as the predictor by themselves. Or maybe you'll just go in and you'll pick out your favorite indicator of F1 and your favorite indicator of F2 and multiply those together. So there were a lot of different ways of trying to simplify what was an absolutely heinous process. Most of them, I think, were focused on trying to deal with the product indicators themselves and not so much the challenge of all of those god-awful constraints that you had to impose to be able to get this model to run properly. And it's really important to reiterate what you said, is it was no fault of the book or the contributions. This was a problem that was trying to be solved. And the feeling I get from that period of development was a bit like Thomas Edison ran his lab his classic approach was he was very often not guided by theory. He would just do raw mass experimentation. Yeah. So when he was trying to find a filament for a light bulb, he just tried hundreds and hundreds of combinations of things mm -hmm. and picked the best one. And evidently, historically, this was the source of huge conflict with Nikola Tesla, who <laughs> worked in that. the lab. Yeah. He hated it. And I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but I love this quote. Allegedly, Tesla at one point said, trying all combinations of a two-legged table and a three-legged table is a waste of effort if you know from theory that only a four-legged table is not going to fall over. And I think about this with the, well, what if we do a subset? What if we do one? What if we get factor scores? What if we estimate them but don't put the constraints on? Mm -hmm. And as you say, and I really like your phrase, there was not a unified voice in how to do this. And it really was a just let's throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And at the end of the day, it still wasn't clear that if you had a data set and you had two latent factors and you wanted to look at the conspiracy between factor one and factor two in the prediction of an outcome, that didn't really help. No, <laughs> it didn't. And so from that time to now, I would say that we have sort of settled on these two approaches for dealing with latent variable interactions. And one is a very clear offshoot of all of that stuff that was done back then. And then another takes a very, very different approach to it. So let me start with a little bit of a tour around some of the issues in the product indicator approach that were challenging. One right off the bat was that there were a hell of a lot of product indicators, right? You got five indicators on this factor, five indicators on this factor. Following Kenny and Judd, you would just form 25 indicators and schlep those around into your other model. So first of all, it's incredibly unwieldy. But beyond that, it also creates a lot of dependence among things, right? You're using the same pieces to build all of these product variables. 
And so there was work by Martian colleagues that said, all right, first of all, let's not do that. Let's make products, but let's make products that don't reuse any of the variables that you have. So if you have five variables as indicators of this factor and five of this, well, aren't you lucky? You can just pair them up and then you got five product indicators. Does it matter how they go together? It could matter how they go together and there's a literature on that. But the idea is that you don't reuse any variables, right? That's the key. And if you have different numbers of indicators, then too bad. If you got three indicators on one factor and five indicators on the other, you got two who will just be left out of the interaction dance. So that's dealing with the sheer volume and the problems associated with creating indicators out of the same things over and over and over. And again, what I like about this is like trying to Apollo 13 it. Yep. Marsh said, how do we make this tractable? Exactly right. We have to make this practical. We have to make this accessible. One of the other things along the way in the formation of those product indicators, and you alluded to this earlier in a measured variable context, is that oftentimes people will recommend that you mean center those before you form those product indicators. And one of the reasons is, and you and I talked about centering as a whole episode, which you don't need to have any recollection of, but in these models, we are usually doing both the covariance structure and a mean structure. And even though we might think, oh, interaction, that's really just about the interplay of the variables in the covariance structure, it has implications for the mean structure. And when you're estimating a covariance structure and a mean structure simultaneously, historically, that can present some estimation challenges. And so mean centering things, although it can be useful for interpretation purposes, it's really more about getting intercepts and means closer to zero which generally will give you a much easier time from a model convergence standpoint. In fact, there's even a version of this type of model where you go in and you take all of your product terms and you subtract their means from them so that you wind up centering those. So that's a double mean-centered strategy. The idea of that being that you can actually eliminate the mean structure of this model altogether and don't have to worry about that. Something that Patrick alluded to earlier had to do with model constraints that had to be in place when you create that interaction term. The idea behind that is that if I know things about, I'm just going to call it factor one, and I know things about factor two, then mathematically, when I multiply those two together, because the interaction of those two is a function of those other things, I should know things about the product of F1 and F2. And so the original constraints that existed in these models were the result of the mathematics of multiplying things together and all the implications that that would have, whether it's for means or variances or covariances overlaid with certain distributional assumptions. Well, nowadays, people essentially go, ah, screw the constraints. Just allow all of the factors to covary. Don't worry about constraining their variances. Don't worry about constraining their means. For one of the very pragmatic reasons that a lot of those constraints only hold under normality. And if we are not in a world of normality, and guess what? We're not in a world of normality then those constraints are artificial anyway. And so allowing your main effect factors, your interaction factors to co-vary routine now, having the mean structure, the covariance structure without any constraint at all, sometimes referred to as the unconstrained product indicator approach, is very, very common. And all of these, I believe, are very clever and are very practical, but I can't shake the feeling of trying all possible two-legged tables and all possible <laughs> three-legged tables. I mean, that's sort of where the literature went, right? There are a lot of different methods, and 
In the end, simulation research showed that under a variety of distributional conditions, you were a lot safer by just allowing things to co-vary and not constraining those things. The idea being that even though you might have somewhat sharper estimates of things, meaning smaller standard errors around them, when certain distributional assumptions hold, that was a small sacrifice to be able to get something that was unbiased when those constraints actually weren't proper. Which is not a trivial advantage, but it still doesn't sidestep well, do you use all possible products? Do you use a subset of products? Do you use your favorite products? And again, the analogy holds on, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. Sure. And we don't want to get too self-righteous about it because in the Wayback Machine, this was state-of-the-art. This was trying to come up with a practical solution. And the long con is even if we have to jacket some of these less than ideal decisions, it's going to allow us to do something that we aren't otherwise able to do. Well, that kind of describes everything that we do, right, in our field. What is good enough at the time, what helps to solve the problem at the time, later on might be looked at as primitive and full of problems and all of that. But you know what? That's okay. Because the things that you and I advocate now, I hope 10 years from now, people will say, yeah, but we have a better way to do it. That's what's exciting about our field. And this is a description of sort of where we have been in the product indicator approach. There is one sort of self-serving modification to this model that I might mention that I had worked on with my colleagues, Jeff Herring and Shulin Mao. All of the literature that talked about why you would want the factors to co-vary, the main effects and the interactions to co-vary because of violations to normality, all of those reasons actually hold in the product indicators as well. So if you think about I have variable X1 as an indicator on the first factor, and I've got variable X6 as an indicator on the second factor, then on the product factor, I might have an indicator that is literally the product of X1 with X6. Well, because the product X1, X6 is built out of X1 and X6, then unless you have very unrealistic distributional conditions, their residuals should be related to each other as well. And if not, if you don't model those, you can actually distort your assessment of what's going on at the latent level. So one modification that we had suggested, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, was that you parallel what you're doing in the latent portion in the residual portion so that you're not assuming relations to be zero when they really shouldn't be. And that's essentially the product indicator method in a nutshell. And I like it. It might sound very primitive, like, oh, really? I have to go form my own products? It is. It's very simple. But I think it is a completely acceptable way to be able to get at whether or not those two latent variables are conspiring to give us latent variable interaction, right? And one thing I really like and about where we're going to go next is everything that you've described up to this point are modifications of Kenny and Judd. Yep. But what's kind of cool is you can pan back and spin around 90 degrees and say, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What if we just sidestep product indicators entirely? We don't need them. They are a drug mule to us. <laughs> They are. Right? They are. They are a drug mule because what we're trying to do is to hide something in those product indicators that then load on a latent factor to allow us to do something that we want to do. What if we cut out the drug mule entirely and say, let's take a radically different approach to this problem? Yeah. And this is very clever. The whole other way of thinking about this, and it doesn't build off the other at all 
is an approach sometimes referred to as LMS, Latent Moderated Structural Relations. It was year 2000 in Psychometrica mm-hmm. by Klein and Moosbrugger. Is that pronounced <laughs> Moosbrugger? It's probably not, but we'll have a Dutch person clean that up. Moosbrugger. Moosbrugger. It's a terribly important paper, mm-hmm. and it was, uh, hey, what if we took a completely different approach to this that's trying to solve the same problem? Right. And for me, this <laughs> this is the most Scooby-Doo <laughs> method of them all in the following way. Let me give a gentle introduction to how the LMS works. And it starts with the idea that the way products behave is not the same as the way the variables behave that went into that particular product. One obvious reason is that if you have a beautifully normal measured variable X and a beautifully normal measured variable Z, you multiply those two together and get X times Z. How do you think that thing's going to be distributed? (laughs) Non-normal. Non-normal, not even close, right? So now imagine that someone just showed you the distribution of a variable and they didn't tell you it was XZ. Could you look at the distribution of that variable and say, wow, I wonder what was going on that gave rise to that? How could I Scooby-Doo this and try to figure out what went into it? Let's split up and start searching. Well, now bump everything up to the latent level. We have some latent factor one and some latent factor two, and now we have a latent interaction factor. Well, if that latent interaction factor is operating, even if the theoretical distribution of factor one is normal, and even if the latent distribution of factor two is normal, the latent distribution for the product of factor one and factor two should not be normal. And you might say, well, I don't care. I can't even see those. Those are completely invisible. They're latent. I go, yes, but... Y is theoretically made up of a little bit of factor one, a little bit of factor two, and potentially an amount of factor one, factor two. So that means that if there is an interaction between factor one, factor two, that should be propagating into the behavior of our outcome measured variable or our outcome factor, which in turn propagates to the measured variables. And so the really cool trickery behind the LMS method is to look at the distributions of the variables that you have. I don't mean their variances and covariances or their means, which is what we are accustomed to doing. I mean, actually look at the distributions and say, what would have to be going on at the latent level, including an interaction between two factors to give rise to the shape of the distributions that we have? And the shape of those distributions Not normal, as Patrick said, but they can be characterized as a finite mixture of normals. And so if we can fit in our observed variables a finite mixture model, right, a finite mixture of normals, we can actually work our way backwards and figure out, wow, how much interaction would have to have been going on at the latent level to give rise to the distributional behavior of the things that we observe? It's incredibly clever. It is incredibly clever. It goes back to Pearson's crabs, right? (laughs) It sure does. Not his first bout with crabs when he was a teenager, (laughs) but the second one (laughs) where he was developing early models for finite mixture, 
and was measuring carapaces of crabs and trying to find subpopulations of those. Mm -hmm. But what this is, is picture in your mind's eye a univariate distribution. Now I'm going to walk you through it. It starts down low as you go across the Uh x-axis. Starts down low, it goes up in a smooth curve, peaks, goes down, maybe goes back up a little bit and goes back down a little bit. It's clearly non-normal. But you squint and cock your head and say, I could put two univariate normals that overlap a little bit, and the joint distribution of those two are actually going to do a pretty nice job in approximating that non-normal distribution. And in mixture models, they talk about two general kinds of applications, direct applications and indirect applications. And the direct applications, in my own opinion, is where things go a little sideways, which is we're trying to discover subgroups in the population. Right. And we have a whole episode on where we talk about that. But the indirect are to say, hey, wait a minute. We've got this kind of cool way that we can differentially weight multiple normal distributions to recreate this non-normal distribution. And instead of saying, ha ha, I knew it the whole time. This non-normal distribution is because I have discovered the three kinds of offending youth. That's a direct application. This is, huh, I wonder if we can use this to approximate what we believe to be these non-linear relations among the latent factors, we're not saying that these finite groups exist in the population, but we're going to use it as a way of approximating the non-normal distribution. And here's the big thing that would be consistent with an interaction between the latent factors. So imagine I have some theory, and my theory is that kids' mathematical motivation, a latent variable, has some bearing on their mathematical achievement, some other latent variable. But that relation itself is moderated by what we could call parental support. And let's make parental support a latent variable as well. That translates into a model for me where I have potential main effects of latent mathematical motivation, latent parental support on latent math achievement. But then I have an interaction, right? The potential for that clandestine relation that kids' mathematical motivation and parental support have behind the curtain. The Freemasons. (laughs) You mean the Illuminati. So if we run an analysis like this, what we get out of an LMS kind of approach is we don't ever <laughs> we don't ever put in any products. We just say, boop, hey, software, what if there's an interaction between those two? And then we get out an estimate of the main effects as if it were a regression analysis of the main effect paths coming into our outcome, as well as from what we would estimate to be an interaction term there, even though we literally didn't model the interaction term. And there will be metrics associated with this. Typically, a standardized metric is most meaningful because the factors don't have any units, right? Standardized solution, by the way, is something you always have to be a little bit careful of. In the latent moderated approach, you should get a proper standardized solution. In the product indicator approach, you actually get an improper standardized solution because if factor one is standardized and factor two is standardized and you model the product of those as a latent variable, then a product indicator approach, the standardized solution just assumes that the product factor, F1 times F2, is standardized as well. 
but it wouldn't have a variance of one if the variance of the two individual factors, main effect factors, had a variance of one. So in fact, when you get out a standardized solution and a product indicator approach, you have to rescale the standardized solution to correct it. In this particular strategy, the LMS procedure, you will get out a standardized solution that will allow you to understand not just the magnitude of the main effects, but then the magnitude of the marginal effect associated with the interaction. One thing that you won't get, though, are typical fit indices. Because of the nature of the estimation process that's here, you don't get out your favorite things like a root mean square error of approximation or a standardized root mean square residual or a comparative fit index. Those things don't come out here. And the way that people will typically rationalize that is that, well, you know, if I run a model without an interaction term, which I can do using a regular structural equation modeling approach, there's no interaction involved then I would get an assessment of what the fit is. And if that fit is good, then the fit that includes an interaction term, which is just additional information, would be assumed to be fine as well. And I think that's true in other things too, like in MNLFA, aren't there other techniques where you don't actually get out the common fit indices, but we assume it's just building on something that was already fitting reasonably well? Yeah, and that's very common. So MNLFA, you don't get that. If you use full information maximum likelihood with discrete outcomes, you don't get that. The entire multi-level model, you don't get that. And to me, I used to be bothered by that until I realized, hey, we don't have the RMSEA and the CFI and the TLI, which I think are kind of crappy measures anyway. (laughs) And so I don't miss it very much because what it forces you to do is to look at nested model comparisons as you still get negative two times the log likelihood. If you're an MLMer, we call that deviance. And as Greg says, is you can build up a model. And so you have a main effect and you add an interaction. And we don't get an overall assessment of model fit, but we do get an assessment of, is there a significant improvement in model fit with the addition of the interaction factor or not? And so to me, I don't care that I don't have those anymore. And correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, on this one, but... Kind of my reading from the cheap seats is LMS is kind of the gold standard right now. As far as alternatives to the product indicator approach, I would absolutely agree. Of course, if we had Roy Levy on here, he might tell us that all of this could be coded up in a Bayesian approach. But yeah, of the what we might call distribution analytic approaches, I think LMS is the winner. And one of the reasons I think it's the winner, yes, there's some methodological work out there. But one of the big things is accessibility. The LMS approach is available within M+, and I think it might exist not necessarily in Levon directly, but I think there might be a separate R package to try to get at an estimate of like the delta R squared associated with a latent interaction. So I agree with you in terms of it being sort of the most available out there. But in terms of product indicator approach versus LMS, I think they have relative merits. Now, someone who is hardcore LMS, it's very sexy Hulk as these things go. But one of the main criticisms of mixture models, one of the Achilles heels, I think, of mixture models in general is that they have a very heavy reliance on distributional assumptions. In the product indicator world, I don't care about that so much because I can tack on some kind of robust Satora-Bentler kind of correction, and absolutely, I recommend doing that. 
But in the LMS approach, you're actually trying to infer the magnitude of the interaction based on the shape of the distribution that you have and things that you observe. But you can only do that if you make assumptions about the shapes of the distributions that went into that interaction as well. So LMS is distributionally reliant, and that could go south on you the way mixtures do. And it can especially go south on you when you have many indicators, right? When you have a lot of variables that are operating in the system, LMS is a hard model to run. So I think LMS is very elegant, but I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath on the results being better than what you would get out of a product indicator approach, which is generally more accessible. Yeah, and I agree with your entire characterization of LMS. I often hear people say, oh, I know Bauer and Curran hate mixture models. Or, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just really funny is we don't. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know we wrote some papers that were critical of that, and it wasn't a don't use it. It was, uh, well, mixtures are one hypothesis, right? Mm -hmm. In order to do a finite mixture model, you must have a non-normal marginal distribution for the kind of things that we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a non-normal distribution, you can't have a weighted contribution of two normal distributions. That's right. So this marginal non-normality is requisite. It. One hypothesis is that the reason you have non-normality is that you have an interaction between factors, but that's just one hypothesis. There are other alternative explanations for the same data, not the least of which is you have a non-normal item, yep. right? As a guy who studies drug and alcohol use in children, I occasionally encounter a non-normally distributed item. <laughs> so this absolutely is not throwing shade on LMS. It's just saying, like everything else we do, there's a cost to dance with this particular approach. Yeah. And the product indicator approaches have their costs. LMS has their cost. I do think, though, this is yet another interesting area where more novel research can be done. Totally. And so if you're quanti and out wandering the world and thinking about a dissertation or a K award or an F application... There is a lot of really interesting work to be done here, not the least of which, and somewhat ironically, involves an interaction. The question is not which is better, the product indicator or the mixture approach. The question is under what conditions to evaluate what kind of theoretical questions do each of these approaches offer relative advantages and disadvantages? Absolutely, because in the end, it depends. Oh, wow. We usually struggle for an exit. But dude, I think that was it right there. <laughs> Do I need to say it? Again? Don't ruin the moment. Really? <laughs> Just chalk up a win and let's stop the recorder. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to try to get away with something. And they would have, too, if it weren't for those meddling kids. You can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from RedBubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to DonorsChoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, the podcast that might actually make more sense if played backwards. You be the judge. Today's episode has been sponsored by 
Not Area 51, but Area .051, where researchers have been conspiring for decades to try to get to Area .049. And by the Y-Files, a new series that's dependent on the X-Files, although with a lot more error. And finally, by Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and some of the latent variables you see in your journals. You tell us what's more believable. This is most definitely not NPR. Oh, <laughs>